Now let us turn together in God's Word to our reading in 2 Chronicles chapter 8. 2 Chronicles chapter 8, and we read again the words of verse 11. And Solomon brought up the daughter of Pharaoh out of the city of David unto the house that he had built for her. For he said, My wife shall not dwell in the house of David, king of Israel, because the places are holy, whereunto the ark of the Lord has come. A few weeks ago, I was being driven along a ten-lane superhighway in the city of Buenos Aires in Argentina. The car in which I was driving was in the second lane next to the inside lane and the driver who was a, a local in Buenos Aires nonetheless wasn't very familiar with this new highway and all of a sudden he realized that the exit he wanted to get where we were going was looming very quickly ahead. He glanced in his central mirror, gave a signal and swept into the inside lane and uh, very quickly cut out the egg onto the exit. Well, coming on the inside lane, there was a very large and powerful bus. Driver had to brake suddenly and he let us know that he was there. We heard his horn blasting at us. And the driver, our friend who was driving, uh, was then uh, accused by his wife, who was in the back seat, of uh, very careless driving. She was right, of course. She expostulated with him. And uh, I'm afraid those of us who are drivers, we can understand the response of the driver, his uh, defense mechanism, internal defense mechanism, got working. And he began to justify what he had done that he didn't know the road, it was new, and he didn't know the exit was coming so quickly. And in any case, he said, there's a blind spot. And that bus was in the blind spot. Now, if you're drivers, you know exactly what that means. If you just look in your central mirror, especially if you're in fast-moving traffic and motorways, you want to change lanes, it's not enough just to look in that central mirror. There is a blind spot. There's that bit just coming up where you are where you don't see for a split second a car that's coming. So you have to use your side mirror or you have to glance over your shoulder. Well, he said, it was the blind spot. As if that justified what he had done. And you know, as we meet at the outset of a communion season, we hear the words of the Apostle Paul let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. Let us examine ourselves, Paul says, in many ways, including those blind spots. Those blind spots that we can so easily overlook or justify. How often in the lives of God's people this is true. You think of a servant of God like Peter. What a great man of God he was. 
how mightily God used him. Uh, he suffered imprisonment for the sake of the gospel. Eventually death. He was the instrument used by God to preach the gospel boldly to those who had not heard, the Gentiles. He, a Jew, willing to go and meet with and eat with and have contact with these pagan outsiders, the Gentiles. And yet, as the years went on, we know how there was that blind spot. And there in Antioch, Peter, the Jew, who served the Lord Jesus faithfully, a man committed to God and to the church of God, yet there we're told that because of pressures that came in upon him, he refused to eat with Gentiles, serving the Lord faithfully in every area of his life. But here, there was this blind spot, and he was unfaithful, and he should have examined himself in the light of God's word and taken corrective action. And this evening, remembering this solemn teaching, that as you and I, who profess the name of Jesus Christ, are called to be holy in every area of our lives, not to justify our failures, even those that are like the blind spots that we might not be aware of, or if we are, excuse them. Let's turn to this man Solomon. And I want us to notice the blind spots in Solomon's life and to notice how tragic the failure to recognize and to confess and to correct by the grace of God his blind spots turned out to be. In his case, it was desperately serious. In his case, it led to moral and spiritual collapse. For if you turn to parallel passages in the book of Kings, 1 Kings chapter 11, you read there that Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord. That he was not faithful, he did not wholly follow the Lord his God as did his father David. So what was the problem? What were the blind spots? And may God help us, even though ours may not be identical, but may God help us to engage in such earnest self-examination in the light of his word for our lives and our profession as by God's grace we come to his table on the Lord's day. I want to suggest two main things that come out here in the story of Solomon. One of them is referred to in this particular verse. Indeed, they both somehow enter into the verse. And first of all, there is this, that his secular life was divorced from his spiritual life. His secular life, his or attending to ordinary affairs, not in the church, not in the temple, but in his everyday life. His secular life was divorced from his spiritual life. Now there was so much good, wasn't there, in Solomon. Solomon, a man of great prayer, who can read the dedication of the temple and that wonderful prayer of Solomon's without bowing in adoration before that God whom Solomon describes, whom the heaven of heavens cannot hold, how much less this temple that I have built for him. Or the humility of the man when God asks him to choose 
and of all the things that he could have chosen, he chose humbly to be a faithful servant to the people of God. That he might with wisdom rule this great people. There is so much in the life of Solomon that encourages and challenges. We read his writings and we are taught and enlightened and moved and challenged. And yet, this man of God, this man of prayer and of humility and of wisdom, this is the man of whom we read in verse 11 that he brought up the daughter of Pharaoh to the house that he had built. He brought this woman, a pagan woman, an idolatress. He brought her out of Egypt, of all places, the land of bondage, the land that was hostile, not merely hostile politically, but spiritually to all that Israel stood for. And out of that place, he brought up this woman to be his wife in the city of God in Jerusalem. Now I have no doubt that Solomon probably said to himself, maybe to others, perhaps some of his advisors expostulated with him, we don't know, but I have no doubt that Solomon probably said, ah, but uh, uh, there are precedents. What about Ruth? She was a Moabitess. And the word of God said that there should be no intercommunion between the Israelites and the Moabites. The God of Moab was an abomination to the God of Israel. What about Ruth? Or what about Rahab? Rahab a Canaanitess. The land that was plunged in such terrible immorality that God in sovereign justice in his judgment had to destroy that people from before the onward march of the people of God. And this woman Rahab was a member of that pagan, immoral, idolatrous community. Indeed, she, she practiced their immorality. The Bible tells us that she was a prostitute there in the land of Canaan. And so Solomon might well say, but Rahab was brought into Israel, brought into the people of God. Well, I don't know if Solomon said that or not. He might well have done it, considering that he would doubtless have to seek to justify before God's people what he had done. But if he did, he conveniently forgot that those two were two who came in repentance and in acceptance of the God of Israel and his laws and his people and the witness of that people of God. Not this woman. This woman who was brought in a different way, a different category, not sharing the faith of Israel. And so we ask, why? Why did Solomon do this? Well, I suppose that uh, probably the main reason was political. It would ensure an ally on his southern border. Israel was a powerful nation. It was a matter of great prestige, no doubt, for Solomon, the king of the small nation of Israel, to have Egypt on his side. And for the Pharaoh, one of the great world leaders of the day, to be willing that his daughter should marry the king of Israel. And so for Solomon it was a, a very astute political decision to marry the king of Egypt's daughter. Uh, no doubt it created an alliance that was very powerful. And so here is Solomon uh, bringing this pagan woman for secular political reasons 
into the city of God and to allay the fears of the godly in order to quieten the suspicions and the doubts and I've no doubt the tears of many of God's people what did Solomon do? well we're told here that he took the daughter of Pharaoh into the city of David to the house that he had built for her a separate house for he said my wife shall not dwell in the house of David king of Israel because the places are holy whereunto the ark of the Lord has come excluded from the temple excluded from the worship of Israel because she was a pagan woman and Solomon feeling rather pleased with himself that he had managed to to handle this delicate situation to attend to his secular affairs to advance his political status and at the same time to keep within the rules of Israel and the rules of the people and the laws of God and I suppose that doing that he doubtless felt that he was taking all necessary precautions so that his own spiritual life would be unaffected and you could argue that uh, that was indeed the case as you go on from verse 11 to verse 12 immediately after this action of bringing up this uh, pagan woman into such an intimate relationship with himself into the city of God we read in verse 12 then Solomon offered burnt offerings to the Lord on the altar of the Lord which he built before the porch and we read about his offerings at personal expense great devotion much activity encouraging Israel to be faithful to the Lord their God to put the worship of God in the central place in their lives and in the life of the nation now you see how subtle it is don't you Solomon would doubtless say that running Israel was one thing that had to be done in accordance with God's laws Israel were God's people he had chosen them from out of all the other nations of the earth to be a special treasure to himself he had given them his holy law they were separate holy and so Solomon would say yes the laws of God in all their uh, their impact and their power must be applied in every aspect of life here in Israel but but there is something outside these laws that's foreign policy that's relationship with other nations we don't need to apply so Solomon must have reasoned we don't need to apply the same laws the same holy standards when we get into that kind of area it's if you like uh, an application of the proverb that came much later when in Rome do as the Romans do and that's how Solomon acted in this instance his secular life divorced from his spiritual life now as you read through these books of Chronicles there is such tremendous teaching so great challenges for us who profess to be the people of God as you look at the lives of these kings of Israel and of Judah we look at the life of, of a man like Jehoshaphat and the very same thing thankfully on a lesser scale but the same principle is found to be operating here's Jehoshaphat a good a godly man 
a man that we, we thrill to as we read of his faith in God, as we read of his uh, activity on behalf of the name and the glory of God in Judah. But what does Jehoshaphat do? Well, he forms a marriage alliance. It's stated clearly for us in Scripture. He formed a marriage alliance with Ahab, the wicked king of Israel. Jehoshaphat's son married Ahab's daughter. And of course Jehoshaphat is rebuked by the prophet of God uh, when he goes to fight alongside Ahab. Ahab said, will you go to fight with me against the Syrians? We've got to take back the city of Ramoth Gilead. And Jehoshaphat, very difficult for him to refuse. After all, his own son was married to Ahab's daughter. There were, there were tensions there. There was a pool within the family. How could he say no to someone who was virtually a relative of his? And so Jehoshaphat did it. And then the Bible tells us an amazing fact. That after he has been rebuked and serves God faithfully in different ways in the years that follow, again he does the same thing. The king of Israel says, how about forming a trading alliance? You remember the instance? And down to uh, the port there and the ships were got together and they were to be sent out. A joint venture between the godless king of Israel and the godly king of Judah and God rebuked Jehoshaphat yet again the ships you remember were destroyed and the whole venture came to nothing a great loss to Jehoshaphat and to Judah in economic terms blind spots a blind spot in this godly man Jehoshaphat he loved God he wanted to be obedient to God but somehow or other this was his blind spot and he could not or would not see and could not or would not repent and confess that this was so in the sight of God. And my friends, when you look at Jehoshaphat, we're going to see it in the case of Solomon again in a moment. But you look at what happened as a result of that in the life of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat's son Jehoram. You read about him in the chapter, of course, after Jehoshaphat dies. And the Bible tells us one of the most poignant phrases about anybody in the whole of scripture it tells us about Jehoram well it tells us he was an evil man not like his father Jehoshaphat uh, he was married to a daughter of Ahab wicked Ahab and the Bible tells us that when Jehoram died it's put this way he departed to no one's sorrow or in another version he passed away to no one's regret what a terrible thing. What an epitaph to have. He passed away to no one's regret. But he was the son of Jehoshaphat. And it was Jehoshaphat who had made the alliance. It was Jehoshaphat who had married this man Jehoram to a daughter of the wicked king of Israel. Well, only God knows the heart. God weighs the scales of judgment. It's not for us to say how much blame there was to Jehoshaphat in this thing. But undoubtedly Jehoshaphat was at fault. He couldn't see the blind spot. And he kept turning to, to do the same sin. A favorite sin. A sin that he was unwilling to confess. A sin that brought great tragedy to the whole people of God. And so it was with Solomon. Though worse as we shall see. And therefore as you and I come before God this evening we too must pray
We're going to sing, to close our service shortly, Psalm 139, the last verses. Search me, O God, search me, O God. Know my heart, see if there be any wicked way in me. Or as we were singing in Psalm 19, cleanse thou me from secret faults. And so tonight, at the outset of this communion season, as we seek to be a holy people, a people pleasing to God, so that as we sit at the table of the Lord, we do it to the glory of God, open before him. Let us then learn from Solomon. Let these be our prayers too. Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Search me. See if there be any wicked way, any blind spot. Others see it, but, but I don't. But I ought to. I ought not to justify this behavior that sadly is mine. And so we, we ask the question. Solomon's secular life was divorced from his spiritual life. Politics, foreign politics, one thing. Life in Israel, another thing. And we ask this question. Can you divorce the two? As Christian men and women, can you separate them? Can you have different compartments? Is it possible to come to the Lord's table content if we are regular at the services, never missing worship if we can avoid it, always at the prayer meeting unless some genuine obstacle comes in the way, always having family worship in our homes, always giving faithfully to the work of God, the cause of God through the church, but at the same time tolerating sub-Christian standards at work. In that area that's outside the church, it's that we're with secular people and they have different standards. Oh, we'd prefer it differently perhaps, yet, well, we've got to live in the world, haven't we? And so the standards of holiness and of righteousness and of obedience that in one area of our lives we might seek to follow, yet in another, as we go to the office or the shop or wherever it is, the hospital or the school, somehow or other, it's different. I don't know if you've ever come across a book, it's not really a very well-known novel, but it's called The Voisey Inheritance by a man called Granville Barker. And uh, it tells about uh, a very successful, I think it's a North of England businessman who was uh, a churchman, uh, but who operated two very different standards in his church life and in his business life. And his son, who was uh, in the business and was going to inherit the business, became unhappy about this. It's not a, a Christian book. I, I don't remember if there's any particular Christian emphasis or teaching in it, but the son becomes uneasy. He doesn't like the methods that his father is adopting, and he wonders if he can continue uh, along these particular ethical lines. The father says to him on one occasion, you must realize, son, that money-making is one thing and religion another, and family life another. We must apply our energies wholeheartedly to each of these in turn and realize that different laws govern each, that there's a different end to be served, a different ideal to be striven for in each. Is that right? Is that Christian? I think Solomon 
convinced himself that it was all right. Different laws in his foreign policy. You can marry Pharaoh's daughter, but theirs, it says here, in the temple, in the house of God in Jerusalem, no, no. You've got to follow God's laws and adapt to and obey God's holiness. I remember in my student days sharing uh, a room for a couple of years with a young man who's, he was a medical student, whose father was a Christian and whose mother was a Buddhist. Now the father was obviously, I never met him, uh, the young man came from the south of England. But the father was obviously uh, very successful in business and uh, a very knowledgeable man in the area of doctrine. He was very insistent that the right books should be read by his son with right doctrine. It wasn't free church or Presbyterian, but it was biblical doctrine. And yet, he was a very harsh man. He was a very strict father, overly strict. And it seems that he made life very difficult, both for his son and for others. In fact, he'd fallen out with his local church over some issue or other, and uh, for quite a long time he wasn't attending. Uh, they weren't orthodox enough for the way he saw things. And on various occasions, uh, my friend would be uh, troubled as he received letters from his father. His father was threatening not to, to pay his fees and so on. On one occasion, he was sitting at the table just beside me there and he was reading a letter from his father. I didn't see the letter. I still remember him saying, why is it that I get on so much better with my Buddhist mother? who was a, a gentle soul, my Buddhist mother, than with my Christian father. <coughs> there were blind spots, weren't there? You can do in business these things in the church. Well, of course, you have to be submissive to the Word of God. But friends, that's impossible. Holiness is indivisible. God wants you and me to be holy in every area of our lives, in every motive, in every action, as holy in the office, as holy in business, as holy in the family, as here in this blessed hour of worship. And God calls for what our Lord Jesus describes as the eye that is single, the eye that is not looking one way in one situation and another in another. We can't push Pharaoh's wife to an area outside God's control. That's what Solomon did. But we can't. And if we try it, we are being unfaithful to the God who has called us. And as you and I, by God's grace, sit at the table of the Lord, we dare not come to that table if we know that in some area of our lives there is a blind spot that we are not seeking by the grace of God to expose and by God's grace to overcome. It's not always easy, but the word comes to us. Whatever you do, whether you eat, whether you drink, whatever you do, do all 
after the glory of God. And so as you and I anticipate the table of the Lord, let us examine our profession in secular things in the world, not only in our commitment and activity within the church of God. I don't know and probably imagine that most of you are not as familiar with the larger catechism as you are with the shorter catechism or the Westminster Confession. But it's a very marvelous document and I often find that it's uh, spiritually very helpful to turn to the larger catechism and to find the expansion of what we have in the shorter. And in the various questions concerning the Lord's Supper, I recommend them to you. They're marvelous material for personal examination and preparation before coming to the table of the Lord. And very rightly, uh, one of the questions there that asks how we should prepare ourselves, how we should examine ourselves before coming to the Lord's table. Uh, they say that we should examine, or they, believers, should examine themselves of their being in Christ, of their sins and wants, of the truth and measure of their knowledge, their faith and their repentance, of their love to God and the brethren, of their charity to all men, of their desires after Christ and of their new obedience. And all that is wonderfully true. And what an exercise it is to examine ourselves in the light of that. But I would set alongside it the challenge of this verse tonight and of the life of, of Solomon that as we examine our, our love for God, our prayerfulness, our devotion, our holiness with the people of God and in all these great meetings that we have and in the activities of the church, let us not forget that we examine equally what we are in our business, in our financial dealings, in those areas that are totally outside and how true it is in the world in which we live outside as far as men are concerned the laws and the standards of almighty God and his word that we there too may be the people of God not divorcing our secular life from our spiritual life but I want to suggest one other thing with regard to Solomon and his blind spots and is this, his public life was not matched by his private life. His public life was not matched by his private life. In 1 Kings chapter 11, we read at the opening of that chapter that King Solomon loved many strange women, together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. Well, no doubt, many of these were political alliances. Just as he got Pharaoh on his side, so he would get the other neighboring nations and their kings on his side. But the Bible says that it wasn't just that. For we've just read this word that King Solomon loved many strange women. In his private life, he was prepared to enter into romantic or emotional attachments not, no doubt, with many of them, mere political alliances, but certainly with some. And for you and me, it's utterly incredible, isn't it, to read this. We read the Song of Solomon. We read the tremendous purity 
that is set before us, the purity that God expects and that God graciously gifts in married life. And Solomon tells us in wonderful language of that, and indeed it becomes for us a reflection of that even greater love between Christ and his bride, the church. Or we read other things that Solomon uh, himself wrote, we read in the, in the book of Proverbs. The advice that he gave, we don't know to which of his sons, but it's, it's in here. Proverbs uh, chapter 5, for example, I read from verse 15. My son, drink waters out of thine own cistern, and running waters out of thine own well. Let thy fountains be dispersed abroad, and rivers of waters in the streets. Let them be only thine own, and not strangers with thee. Let thy fountain be blessed, and rejoice with the wife of thy youth. Let her be as a loving hind and pleasant roe. Let her breast satisfy thee at all times, and be thou ravished always with her love. And why wilt thou, my son, be ravished with a strange woman, and embrace the bosom of a stranger? So writes Solomon. And we're told that King Solomon loved many strange women. And that Solomon, who was such an astute uh, guy, uh, astute judge of human psychology, we read of some of the great decisions he made. We read in the book of Proverbs of tremendously practical and astute advice. And here is this man who understands all these things and who would well have known the dangers. He writes about them, the dangers of unequal yokes, as the Bible talks about them. And yet he allowed double standards. He allowed it in his own life, his public life, still a life that is in obedience to God, his worship, his sacrifices, his teaching. But he himself, somehow or other, allows his emotions, his private, personal desires, to be different. To clash with what he was expected to be as a man of God, leading the people of God. No wonder that the Lord Jesus Christ in his great Sermon on the Mount, comes to his disciples and insists that there must be harmony between the outside and the inside, between the heart and the profession. No wonder the Lord Jesus says that it's not enough to say that you've never acted angrily or never committed murder. But he says, look within. What about these unloving thoughts? What about these angry reactions? No wonder he speaks in the same way about personal purity, warning that our private life must match our public life. Our inner life must be in harmony with our outward life and vice versa. No wonder that he attacks the, hypocr the hypocrisy of the Pharisees whitewashed sepulchres. You're all this on the outside. You're very religious. You're very uh, careful to give everything you should give to the, to the temple. You hand in your collections and you demand that people are regular and that they do the ceremonies and they do the cleansings and the washings and the baptisms and the sacrifices. But what about yourselves? What about your own life before God? And how insidious it all is. How active Satan is. Active in my life and yours, our families, our congregations. How insidiously he works. I imagine, I can't claim total biblical authority for this, but I imagine that Solomon 
when he took this woman, uh, Pharaoh's daughter, uh, into that palace there in Jerusalem, and he probably said to begin with that it wouldn't affect him. This was something political. Uh, and he probably said that this woman and the other woman, that they would be influenced by the godliness of Israel. They would see the wonders of divine, the divine acting in Israel. God's law, like the Queen of Sheba, so wonderfully impressed. No doubt he said that. He's neither the first nor the last to say it. How many Christians can say that? How many young Christians perhaps who are seeking a life partner and persuading themselves that this one who is not a believer still she or he will be influenced by my faith by our church connection and so on that's what Solomon said that's not what the Bible says and I suppose that as time went on and he saw that it wasn't working that uh, he may well have said well even though they're idolaters they'll have to keep their idolatry to themselves let it be in their own minds in their own private rooms we won't allow it outside there it's not going to contaminate the people of God but then little by little the altars they spilled over from the daughter of Pharaoh's room to the rest of the house and outside and we're told that eventually tragedy of tragedies Solomon was building altars to many strange gods the abominations of the Ammonites and the Moabites and all the other pagan nations and the Bible tells us that it was because of the toleration of these women of their practices blind spots blind spots Solomon unwilling to confess unwilling to repent I suppose too that he would have said that one's private life doesn't affect one's public service doesn't that have a rather modern ring don't so many of our politicians say it doesn't matter what you are in private you can still do your job well well that's probably the kind of thing that Solomon said but you read the rest of the story of Solomon. Read how following on this we're told that Solomon began to oppress many of the people. God's people. Why? Because his personal life was out of step with God. He was not living a holy life. He had allowed disobedience to enter in. He was not permitting his blind spots to be exposed to the authority of God's word and so in other areas he began to sin he oppressed the people we're told of, uh, of uh, others coming uh, enemies being permitted by God to come and to fight against Israel and Israel losing for the first time in many many decades because this man is not matching his private life with what he professed to be and indeed was as a great man of God and as a leader of the people of God and in the long term how terribly tragic we go on to read of Solomon and his death we read of his son taking over we read of the division of Israel of how ten tribes separated because of the stubbornness 
of Rehoboam and his young advisors. And then there is a very striking comment that's given us in the Word of God. When it talks about Rehoboam and talks about his failures and his sins, it tells us this. You have it just three chapters on. It's uh, chapter 12. And in verse 13, we're told, So King Rehoboam strengthened himself in Jerusalem and reigned. For Rehoboam was one and forty years old when he began to reign, reigned seventeen years. The city which the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. And his mother's name was Naamah, an Ammonites. And immediately following on that, and he did evil in the sight because he prepared not his heart to seek the Lord. Now who was this Naamah, an Ammonites? Well, someone Solomon married. And he allowed her pagan practices to permeate Israel and to affect his own life that had been such a godly example there in Israel. The long-term effect of this double standard, of this divorce between the secular and the spiritual, between the public and the private. We're told that it led directly to the evil of Rehoboam, to the division of Israel. And the line goes on and on, to the captivity to the destruction of Jerusalem and all the catalogue of evils and of suffering and of sin that followed on that. Well, friends, God may graciously overrule my sin and still bless his church. He did it in Corinth. There in Corinth there were many sins. I didn't mention them. You know what they were. And yet God blessed the church in Corinth. There was life. There was enthusiasm. People were being converted. They were being built up. There was an impact in Corinth. In spite of some of the sins of some of the people of God. God may sovereignly, in spite of our failures, in spite of our sins, come and bless his church. And all oh, we long that he would. That he would come over the mountains of our provocations and bless his church but you and I cannot complacently say that because he is sovereign therefore my failure to examine my blind spots and by God's grace ruthlessly to uproot them to trample them underfoot there at the foot of the cross I cannot say that if I do not do that that still the church will be blessed God's people suffered when Achan hid the stuff under the floor of his tent. And so tonight, may God help us to examine our lives, our blind spots, in the light of his word. Examine me and do me prove. Try heart and reins, O God. And as you and I do that by God's grace, May this coming Lord's Day be a day of blessing, of power, of holiness. A day when we know that God is with us and that to bless us. Let us pray. O oh Lord, our gracious God, how easy it is to speak of these things. How easy it is to challenge others to rebuke them, 
and yet not to turn the searchlight of thy word upon ourselves. And how easy it is to take thy word and in all sincerity to let that word do its work in one area or another, but scrupulously avoiding that it would shed its light, its convicting and purifying light in that other area, on that other sin. And so we pray that tonight thou wilt help us to be open before our God. All things are open before thee. What can we hide? Thou knowest all things. And grant that we would tonight confess anew if in any area we are conscious of disobedience and failure and know the wonderful joy of sins forgiven, of cleansing in the precious blood of Jesus, of our feet being set once again upon that path of obedience and of holiness. In Jesus' name. sing Psalm 139, Psalm 139, at verse 21. 